Are we on? We're great. We're there now. Okay, deep breath. Uh, if you have or you can access a Bible, uh, please turn to the last book in it, which I know is not really a book. And I'll say more about that very soon. But please turn to Revelation, because starting today, as Stephen says, we're going to begin reading it together for the next, and I'm not entirely sure how many Sundays. Possibly one. <laughs> I'd like to get you involved straight off, and here's what I want you to do, and some of you are there already, but whenever you hear, whenever you think about the book called Revelation, what word or what phrase immediately or often comes to mind, Okay. So a bit of a game of word, of word association. So whenever you hear the word revelation or think about the book revelation, what word or what few words or phrase immediately comes to mind? Okay, have you got one? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person beside you and say hello and then tell them the word or the phrase. Please don't leave anybody out and if you haven't got a word, just make one up, okay? <laughs> so go for it. Turn around, say hello and then say the word that comes to mind or the words when you think of revelation. Okay, now, thanks for doing that. I'm not going to get any feedback at this point, but what I would love you to do is see on your way out this morning as you pass me at the door, tell me the word or the words you heard. So I won't know who said them because you're telling them what somebody, do you know what I mean? Uh, and if you don't tell me on the way out this morning, drop me a message and just let me know because I'd really be really interested. The reason I've, I did that is because the experience or the prospect of reading Revelation does tend to provoke a reaction. It's a book that intimidates, that scares, that confuses, that excites, that intrigues, that shocks, that surprises, and I know I could go on and on, but when it comes to understanding it, or trying to, or knowing where to start with it and what to do with it, well, that's where the problems begin, and often it's where the engagement ends. And so there tends to be a couple of extreme approaches. At one end of the spectrum, there's obsession and preoccupation with it. Revelation consumes some people. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's general avoidance. Apart from maybe dipping into the odd chapter, like chapters 2 and 3, and those so-called letters to the seven churches. But on the whole, Revelation tends to be generally neglected. I wonder where you sit this morning. Now, the amount of books and novels that have been written about it and inspired by it are numerous. And some of those books have sold millions and millions of copies. Plus, I will guarantee, depending on your age and your background, that some of us will have seen the odd movie or two based on Revelation or aspects of it. Hands up if you've seen a movie in the past based on or about Revelation. Stick your hand in the air. Right, lots of people. The variety of uh, critical comments and perspectives and quotes about Revelation is fascinating. Although one of my favorite that I came across recently was from George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, who referred to Revelation as the curious record of the visions of a drug addict. 
Because you see, Revelation is kind of out there. It's certainly unique, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that I want to say as strongly and as directly and as early on as I can say it. Not only is Revelation part of Scripture, and therefore it is incredibly useful on so many different levels for us personally and also for us as a community, but it is also essential. It's essential in terms of our worship, it's been really interesting this morning how much of our worship has been inspired by the book of Revelation. But it is essential we go to this book, which is not really a book, for our worship. It's also essential in terms of our discipleship, of our living in and our engagement with this world. It's also essential in terms of our witness and our future. In fact, if we neglect or avoid or even get obsessed with it, it will be to our very great loss. And therefore, it's about time. Or maybe it's not so much about time as it could be the right time to read this together as a church. About two years ago, I shared how along with the elders, I discovered which books of the Bible I had spoken on or from during my, at that stage, 13 years here at this church. And I shared then that there were a few reasonably significant ones that in 13 years I hadn't touched, I hadn't spoken from. The first one of those was Deuteronomy. And you'll remember that in 2021, we did a series in Deuteronomy. Second one was Leviticus. And I said then, I'm happy to leave that for the next pastor. <laughs> and I still am happy to do that. <laughs> and the third book I mentioned then was Revelation. And I said, I kind of hoped Jesus would return before I ever had to do it. <laughs> and then we could be part of the live feed. But unfortunately, or fortunately, that hasn't happened. And so here we still are. Okay. So this morning and in a second, we're going to read the first eight verses. We're going to read the prologue, as it's called, or the introduction. And I'm going to attempt to unpack and highlight some key issues and thoughts. But before we do that, I need to zoom out for a second. I need to take the wide view, and I need to make one reasonably important, big, huge picture comment. Revelation is about Jesus. Revelation is about Jesus. And therefore, whatever else we do with this text, and there are undoubtedly a number of different things we can do with it and should do with it. But above and beyond everything else, we've got to realize, we've got to remember, we've got to keep front and central that revelation is about Jesus. As someone has said, in no other book of the Bible do we see Jesus as clearly and as compellingly as he is right now. Now that in itself might be a revelation to some people. So look at the first line with me. If you have a copy in front of you, how does this start? It starts the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so even as we set out on this journey, I want us to grab hold of that, not just starting point, but starting, ongoing, and end point. It's all about Jesus and to echo another person, if anyone asks, why read Revelation? 
the unhesitating answer should be this, to know Christ better. Now, keeping that wide-angle lens in place, let me name or highlight four ways Jesus is portrayed and referred to in Revelation, which, as I say, should be kept. These are four ways that should be kept in sharp focus. They're not the only ways, and in fact, we'll discover that, but they're four crucial ways. And if you walk out of here today with this as your takeaway at the beginning of this series, that it is all about Jesus who is, that'll be brilliant. Honestly, that will be brilliant. So Jesus is, number one, and it's in our text, but we'll get there in a second. Jesus is the faithful witness who remained true to God despite significant adversity. Now, the importance of this title and description of Jesus is going to become clear, clear as we go along. But let me simply say this to those of us who are Christians. We are to be faithful as he was faithful. And we are to be witnesses as he was a witness. And in all likelihood, that faithful witness of ours is going to have to be lived out against the backdrop of hassle and hardship and trials for being a Christian. Second description of Jesus. He is the present one. He's the one who walks among the communities of his followers, speaking words comfort speaking words of challenge through his spirit. Jesus is not distant. Jesus is not absent. He's not removed. He's not remote. He is with us. He is present. And he is speaking to us. He is communicating with us all the time. Question is, are we listening? What do we hear him saying to us? But he is present with us. As Steve said earlier to the kids before they left, as they go into whatever they go in, God's with you. Jesus is with you. He is the present one. Thirdly, he is, and this image in reality needs to be paramount and dominant as we read, engage, and look and listen. He is the lamb. He is the lamb who was slain and now reigns with God, sharing in the devotion and the worship of heaven. Behold the lamb. And that picture and that portrait and that image of Jesus is going to be blown up and it's going to be expanded and enlarged week after week of this series. And finally, for now anyway, Jesus is not only the faithful witness, he's not only the present one, he's not only the lamb, but he is also the coming one. Jesus will return soon to bring God's purposes to fulfillment, to set up his rule and his reign among the people of God in the new heaven and the new earth. Nobody in the first century knew exactly when Jesus would return, and we still, as I say, wait for that moment today. These are the end times, not based on or because of any speculation or predictions that spill out of some of the imagery or symbols we find in Revelation per se, but simply because all time between the first and second coming of Jesus is end times. All time between the first and second coming of Jesus are the end times. And so as we start reading this, we will come across phrases like, the time is near. Are we closer in the 21st century to this reality than the first century Christians were, of course we are. But see, attempting to calculate or identify the approximate, never mind the exact time frame based on what we read in the likes of Revelation, it's a fool's game. No one knows the time. Jesus himself said that. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. But what it means is that what really matters is knowing Jesus, the coming one. 
and as a result, living each and every day in light of that reality and in light of that hope that one day he will return and he will set everything right at last. So back to that question, why read Revelation? The answer I said was to know Christ better. Let me just add to that, develop that a little bit. It's also to follow him better. That's why we're doing this. Revelation is a discipleship manual. It's not a crystal ball. I'll say a little more about those portraits of Jesus later as we go along, but let's now listen with emphasis on the listen to the first eight verses. And if you're able and you're willing, please stand with me for the public reading of God's unveiling word. Let's stand together. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Take a seat. Right at the start, I made reference to the fact that the 66th book of the Bible, or 27th of the New Testament, isn't actually a book. And that's because it's a letter. Admittedly, a pretty long one. In fact, it's the longest one in the Bible. That's distinctive, but it is still a letter. And so verse 4 tells us who it's from. It's from John. It tells us who it's to. It's to the seven churches in Asia. And then you have an initial opening greeting. Grace to you and peace from him. It's just standard New Testament letter practice. Now, how did John know what to write? And let's be honest, given what he did write, that's a really good question. Well, the answer is there in verse 1. And it's like a five-link chain. It's something God has revealed to Jesus who passes it on via an angel to John to pass on to God's servants, the seven churches. So it's God to Jesus to an angel to John to churches. Bit of a side note, although good to bear in mind, we often refer to what we find, and I have done this, we often refer to what we find in chapters two and three as to the letters to the seven churches. But what we actually find there are particular words and messages to each of the churches. Revelation as a whole is one big letter to a bunch of churches in the first century who were facing issues and challenges 
and pressures. And like every other letter in the Bible, that also means it's written for us, even though it's not written initially to us. And that is so important for a whole bunch of reasons, not least because it reminds us of the need to understand, well, what was the original situation and context that this was written into? Because otherwise what happens is you run ahead and you start applying it to our situation exclusively, and that can be disastrous and dangerous. So this letter was written to specific churches in a specific environment at a specific time. It came at a time roughly AD 96, whenever it felt like the future of the church and people's personal faith was under severe threat. Christians were being persecuted. Some of the key Christians of the first century had martyred and killed. Paul, Timothy, Peter, gone. So Christians were being persecuted. The Roman Empire at the time was growing. It was having a massive godless influence on society and every level of it. And so the challenge for the believers to abandon their faith and just get with the program, just start going with the flow, start to compromise, declare Caesar or Domitian as it was at this time, declare Caesar as Lord. The pressure to do that was intense and also it was really attractive because it's far easier to follow the crowd. It's far easier to follow the prevailing culture than follow Jesus. And so as a result of that, spiritual complacency was starting to creep into the first century church, starting to seep in. And therefore, these first century Christians needed to hear from God. They needed to know they had a future, a glorious future. They needed hope. They needed to know their God was still in control. He was still working out his purposes. They needed to know they were not beaten, but were in fact on the winning side. That the victory had been secured. It had been won. The enemy and his sidekicks were defeated, and their ongoing input was time-limited. These first century Christians needed to know they're part of a bigger story. That things, now hear this, things are not what they would seem. Or to put it better, things are not only as they seem. That's what this book's about. And that being faithful, remaining faithful, even if that meant hassle and hardship and possibly death, even that, it was worth it. Why? Because a new and a better day was coming that would never, ever end. And so God, via Jesus, and an angel, and a faithful servant called John, and we'll say more about him next week, graciously communicates to them for us via a letter to encourage them, to comfort them, to give them help, to give them hope. But Revelation's way more than a letter. Or rather, it's certainly different. It's dramatically different from every other letter you find in the New Testament. And we need to realize this before we begin reading it together. Otherwise, as I say, we're going to get totally lost. We're going to get confused. And also, we're going to end up heading down all kinds of rabbit trails. Revelation has been described as a hybrid document. It's a mixed breed. Because alongside being a letter, it is two other things. Everyone agrees on this. Alongside being a letter, it is two other things. It is a prophecy and it is an apocalypse. It is a piece 
of apocalyptic literature, which is really unusual to us, but was not unusual to first century Jews and Christians. That word apocalyptic probably triggers something in all of us because it is such an emotive word. But let me show you a quote that in some way helps to explain what Revelation as a piece of apocalyptic literature is all about. By the way, I am very aware that this is a sermon series on Revelation, not a lecture class. (laughs) But there are going to be times, and maybe particularly as we get into this, where those lines are going to blur. Plus, I have no clue how to lecture. So Revelation as an apocalyptic book uses visions, symbols, and ancient myths to convey its message. The language of the book is primarily pictorial. It's symbolic language. It is not the language of science or logic. Rather, it is evocative, powerful, emotive language, at times more akin to poetry than to prose. And like the language of poetry, the language of Revelation is sometimes mysterious and slippery, teasing its readers to make connections and to see possibilities that one has never seen before. I love that. And so when anyone who has read it knows this, so whenever you read it, there are animals. Recognizable ones, bizarre ones, dragons, multi-headed beasts, for example. And there are numbers. Lots of them. And there are colors, whole varieties of them. And they all carry significance and meaning. There are multiple pictures painted in word form that grab and stimulate your imagination. And all the time, here's the thing, all the time, they are revealing something. They're pulling back the curtain. They are unveiling something, providing insight regarding reality, past, present, and future. The fundamental conviction of apocalyptic literature is, I say this phrase again, the fundamental conviction of apocalyptic literature is that things are not as they seem, or are not only as they seem. And as John looks, and as John listens, and as John smells, and as John sees the vision, and all the images and imagery that has passed on to him, and he shares it, and he writes it down. Why is he doing it? Because he wants to enable his readers then and now to remain faithful in a hostile world to appreciate the cosmic and historical struggle that rages, that manifests itself in our earthly struggle, but to realize, listen, guys, you are on team lamb. And therefore, you can know and you can experience true life and genuine hope now and then forever. Why? Because of Jesus, the faithful witness, the present one, the lamb coming one. So Revelation is a letter. It is an apocalypse, which really just means unveiling, revealing. In fact, some translations of the Bible begin the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation, the unveiling. But it's also then, thirdly, it's also a prophecy. Five times in the book of Revelation, it explicitly refers to itself as this. The first time is there in verse 3 that we just read a moment ago. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. But the thing about prophecy in the biblical tradition is that it is not exclusively or even primarily about predicting the future. There may be a future dimension, but the primary purpose of prophecy is to bring a word from God. 
to bring a word from God to the people of God then and now, to bring comfort, to bring challenge, to promote true worship, to call us back to first commandment faithfulness, which is exactly what all the Old Testament prophets did. And it is why John refers to and draws from them time and time again in his prophecy. And as someone said to me this morning, to really understand Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament. And John draws on that because he's a prophet. This is prophecy. It is prophecy in the sense of, thus says the Lord. It's a word from God for now, as well as for the future. And so verse 3 says, blessed are those who read it aloud, but then get this bit. Blessed are those who hear it, but doesn't stop there, and take it to heart. And so right from the outset of this series, may that be our posture to read, to hear, and to embrace the life-changing, life-altering word of the Lord in all its dynamic, multi-sensory forms, letter, apocalypse, prophecy. Slight pause for a second. See that idea of blessed are those who read it aloud? Here's a tangible takeaway that I guarantee you will have an impact. Please consider committing to reading this lap, this letter, this apocalypse, this prophecy, out loud during the next week. It will take approximately, actually exactly, averagely, one hour, 25 minutes. Do it by yourself. Do it with someone else. But please consider doing it. Because blessed are those who read it aloud. Okay, so that's, we're near done. How are we doing? You okay? So that's a bit about why Revelation now feels like the right time. And it's about time, I know some of you are saying. I'm nearly here 15 years. It is about time. So that's why. Who absolutely needs to be front and central in all our reading of it? Jesus. Because the reason we're reading it is to get to know him better and to follow him better. And what I've shared is we need to remember, and this is so important as we set out in this journey, we need to remember what we're reading. We're reading a letter, an apocalypse, an apophysis. As I wind this up for today, I want to push into something further. Because right at the beginning of Revelation, as we just read, John's readers are confronted with the greatness of God. And I love the fact this morning, and I didn't know we were going to sing it, but I love the fact this morning we sang the splendor of a king, how great is our God. Because John confronts his readers with the greatness of God right in that opening prologue. And so in verse four, if you've got it in front of you, John says, and John brings grace and peace from, and then he goes into detail about the character and the nature of their God. Because you see, no matter what they were going through, no matter how they're feeling, no matter who's against them, or what lies ahead, their amazing, big, great God is their source of grace and peace, of comfort and help and hope. And so what I would love us to do as we finish up this morning, I'd love us to walk out of here with a renewed, a refreshed, a restored vision of this God, our 
God who is. Here we go, quote verse four, and it's repeated again in verse eight. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He's the almighty. God is eternal. God is all-powerful. John's readers were facing what felt like a permanent, strong, negative force and influence, this Roman empire, which seemed hell-bent on squeezing the life out of these Christians. And so John assures them and reminds them, listen, your God is eternal. Yes, Domitian and all Caesars like him, they declare that they are the everlasting God. They also declare that their empire is eternal, but it's not, and he's not, and never will be. Your God is the one who is and was and is to come. He is eternal. And also, he is almighty. His power, unlike any other, is unlimited, and it knows no end. But John adds more. He then says, this grace and this peace isn't just from him who is and was and is to come, but it's also from Jesus. Look at verse 5. And then he starts spilling out who Jesus is. He is the faithful witnesses with just stress. But note, he's also, and here we go, he is the firstborn of the dead. Your Jesus is the resurrected one. He is the first to rise with a resurrected body. And where he leads, his people are going to follow. He is the resurrection and the life. And so he said that whoever believes in him will live even though they die. So death is not the end for the Christian. Because the firstborn of the dead is their Jesus. And for people facing literal death, for their faith. That promise that our Jesus is the firstborn, but hey, we are going to be resurrected too. That added a whole new perspective to life. But John's not finished. Jesus is also the ruler, still here, of kings on earth. He is King Jesus. And world rulers and leaders can flex their muscles all they want. They can assume they're in control, but there is only one true and ultimate king, and that is Jesus. And one day, as we all know, every knee is going to bow before him. But then get this, still verse 5, this amazing, this faithful, this resurrected king, Jesus, loves you. Did you get that in verse 5? He loves you and has set you free by his blood from sin. And what's more, he is coming, is coming. Please hear that. He is in the process of coming, not will come, is coming. And you'll see him. In fact, every eye will see him. And then you'll be with him forever. So listen, you are loved, you're forgiven, and your future's secure. Grace and peace from God, who is, was, and is to come. From Jesus. And then, it would seem, from the Holy Spirit. Now, this mightn't seem as explicit or obvious, because verse 4 actually refers to, and I know some of you picked this up, the seven spirits. What? Here we go. The seven spirits before the throne. Now, if you've got an NIV, if you look at the footnote, it can also be translated as the sevenfold spirit. As I said, one of the features of apocalyptic literature is the use of symbols and numbers and rich convey information. In truth, one of John's favorite numbers and symbols is seven. And so starting next Sunday night, we're going to start a series, another series called Seven which ties in with this series. 
But one of John's favorite numbers and symbols is seven. It's all over. It's throughout Revelation. And it is a symbol of what? It's a symbol of completeness and it's a symbol of perfection. And so the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit is generally seen and understood as John's way of referring to the complete and perfect spirit who is constantly with us, who is in us, who brings us grace and peace. And therefore, again, you need to know you're never alone. And as John's readers get ready to hear what he has seen and what he has heard and what he has experienced from God as a message or messages to them to inspire them and to shape them and to infuse hope within them in their difficult and intense situation, he starts off by reminding of the greatness and the bigness and the character of the God that he has encountered, who is their God, who he says, listen, your God, who has all these things, he's got this, he has got you, he is for you. And he also knows how this plays out and what lies ahead. And if all we do today out of the back of this is worship and recommit to this God, our God, and trust him with the present and the future, then for me that's a win. And maybe that will be the end of the series because that's enough reason for starting here. And so what we're gonna do, because if you walk out of here this morning with a renewed vision of Jesus and of God, that's it. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna close and gonna invite the guys to come back and we're gonna grab and we're gonna sing some lyrics again, taken from and inspired by Revelation. We're gonna crown him with many crowns. We're gonna ask this God to awake our souls to sing and we are together gonna heal him as our matchless king. Not just now, but for all eternity, as if I was singing it. Okay, let's stand together and sing at the top of our lungs, crown him.